sometimes it seems like the family court system is stacked against men. I've heard from a lot of men who've reached out to me and say, I don't know what to do. I'm struggling to get custody of my kids. I'm dealing with my ex-wife. She's keeping them away from me. And I honestly feel personally very ill-equipped to help. I've been very fortunate that my wife and I have been able to stay together and we raised our kids together. I don't know the answers. And so you know what? I reached out to somebody that did. We're going to talk to Alan Donovan from Fathers Lives Matter right after this. In a culture that scoffs at honor, you can rise up to lead and to shine. It's time to be the best man that you can be. This is the Manlyhood Mancast. Here's your host, Josh Hatcher. Men, if you want to be a better man, you want to grow as a man, you need to do it in the context of community. And we have that at the Manlyhood Man Cave on our Facebook page. Please join us. Be a part of this movement together. Go to the Manlyhood Man Cave. Join the group. We'd love to have you. Let's be better men and build each other up together. Today's interview digs in deep with Alan Donovan of Fathers Lives Matter, and he talks about his journey as a single dad, the things that he learned about the family court system, how he got full custody of his kid. And I know that a lot of men struggle with these issues and have encountered these issues in their life, and my hope is that this interview helps equip you to deal with that situation and to be a better father to the kids that don't live in your home. Without further ado, let's get into our interview with Alan. Alan, it is great to have you on the show. I know we've been kind of working on making this happen for a little while. We've had, uh, between COVID and all kinds of crazy, we've had to postpone a couple times. So I'm really glad to be able to get you on to talk about the work that you do. So, yeah, we're glad to have you, man. Well, thank you. And, and yeah, we have kind of been playing a little bit of phone tag over the last, what, six months, seven months, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and honestly, it's, it's been like that with a handful. There's a handful of guests that are on my, on my list that we've just had it happen, whether it's me or them or back and forth. So I'm really glad that we can have you on today. And uh, I, I'm sure this is going to be an awesome, an awesome interview today. And yeah, you've got a pretty good thing that you're doing. And I think it'd be awesome for our listeners to be able to kind of, to understand it. Why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself and your story and what it is that you do? So my name is Alan Donovan. Um, I'm the founder and creator of Fathers Lives Matter. Um, I am also a podcast host called, and the podcast is called The Father's Truth. Um, basically about me, I'm a single father, a single full-time father. I have full custody of my son. Um, and how I got to doing this is I ended up in a custody fight with my son's mom in 2015. And, uh, you know, not really understanding what I was getting into and understanding the family court system. Um, I just jumped in and I got the first lawyer that I could find, which turned out to be a really big mistake. Um, we had this great game plan that we were going to do. We got into court. My lawyer said five words the entire time. Mm. We got out of court. Um, I got my butt kicked. You know, I had spent $7,000 on this lawyer the lawyer had assured me that everything was going to be great and that, you know, I had this awesome case. Well, I didn't, you know, I lost. So um, basically the case was transferred to the state where my son's mom was living in. And that was Kentucky at the time. So I had six months in which to figure something out. And uh, I fired my lawyer. I started Father's Lives Matter as you know, initially it had just started off as being a place where I could document my journey, whatever my journey was going to be, because at that time I really didn't know what my journey was going to be. And, uh, I ended up, what I ended up doing was I ended up going pro se. And I don't know if you're familiar with what that is. Okay. So basically pro se in the family court arena is representing yourself. You are basically being your own way. Okay. There's a lot of downfalls to that because if you screw up, you know, at any point in the process, you have nobody to blame. Okay. You just, you know, tanked your own case, whole nine yards. 
So, you know, a lot of times in the family court system, they don't recommend doing that. I, however, I recommend doing it just because of the way the family court system functions and lawyers. And we'll get to that, you know, later on, I'm sure. But basically, I ended up teaching myself family law in two different states, the state of Montana and the state of Kentucky, to the point where when I went down to family court, you know, six months down the road after my first involvement in family court, I was able to represent myself. And I was able to represent myself to the point where I won that particular, um, uh, I, I won basically shared custody at that point. And a year and a half later, I was back down there again, representing myself. And this time I walked away to full custody. And so throughout this process, I had been documenting, um, you know, my, my little adventure, so to speak, in the family court system. And it transitioned to where I started helping other fathers. And when I won um, full custody of myself, you know, I had this decision to make. Do I go on with my life and, you know, just either delete the page altogether you know, or pass it on to somebody else that could take care of it? Or could I take all the knowledge and experience that I had gained and start helping other fathers? And ultimately, that's what I decided to start doing, you know, and it's fast forward seven years now. And I've worked with thousands of fathers around the world. You know, I've kind of created this very vibrant and thriving community of fathers and stepmothers and girlfriends and fiancés and grandparents that are, are an amazing support system for these guys that are going through all this stuff. Because one of the big things when I was going through this, I didn't have support, you know, and I know what it's like to be in that position and not have anybody having your back. So that's what I try to do, you know, and it's it turned into something where it's not just in the United States, it is around the world. You know, I've worked with thousands of fathers at this point, basically every country from, the UK to um, Vietnam are some of the far-flung places, Japan, China, um, Switzerland, you know, just about every country that you can think of, with the exception of Russia, I've heard from fathers. And it's the same thing in those family courts over there as it is in the United States. So basically, that's what I spend my days doing is working with fathers. Um, like I said, I mentioned I do the podcast, The Father's Truth. And basically what that was, was a platform to give these fathers a opportunity to get their story started, to get the light shined on their situation. Because that's one of the things in society today, everybody will have no problem in talking about single mothers and the struggles that single mothers face, but nobody wants to talk about the struggles single fathers face. I mean, it's just as prevalent as what a single mother deals with and just as difficult. And honestly, in a lot of cases, it's more difficult. Because the single father doesn't have this whole slew of programs that are available to them like a single mother does. And that's nothing derogatory towards single mothers or anything like that, but it's just a simple fact. And so basically, that is what I do in a nutshell. That's an amazing calling, man, is really what it is. It's a calling. and Yeah, absolutely. I know... Um, it's not my experience myself to have to go through any of that, but I know that my dad uh, went through some of that before I came along. He was married before and has a couple of kids and wanted to be in their life, but just because of the person he used to be, right, wasn't allowed to be in their life. Like, you know, mom wanted nothing to do with him, and that was very difficult for him. Now, later on in his life, he was able to connect with his kids um, and and at least start a relationship, which is a good thing, but... I even remember growing up, like seeing him send cards and the cards would get sent back, you know, and, um, and it was very difficult for him to see that happen where he just was shut out. And I know a lot of men that I have worked with in manlyhood, uh, you know, talked with over the years have this struggle where they just feel like they just get crapped on by this system that, that immediately assumes that the mother is number one, either the best caregiver or the only possible caregiver in the situation and that the man couldn't possibly be a good caregiver. And I think that's kind of heartbreaking, you know? Oh, it's, it's truly heartbreaking. And you are absolutely correct. That is the way the system sets up when a father and a mother walk through the doors of the family court courtroom, automatically the mother is presumed as the only option for 
taking care of these children. The father is looked at as the second, third-class citizen who is basically nothing better than a walking ATM, for lack of a better term. The father is there to pay the court system money, to pay the mother child support, and that's it. You have, you know, it's very rare. I'm actually what's considered a 10 percenter within the family court system. And what that is, is out of all the fathers that go before the family court system, there's, and represent themselves pro se, there's only 10% that walk away with full custody. Mm. If that gives you any idea, because it's, it's, it's getting better, but it's so few and far between that it's unreal. And I've seen situations where these judges have looked at both the parent and the mother and the mother has been, wildly unstable for lack of a better term and obviously not the best choice, but they still give the children to the mother. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that that's a common thing these days. I don't understand it or know why it is, but it, I I've seen it in multiple scenarios where, I mean, and I've seen other scenarios as well where both parents are perfectly capable and they, they come to an agreement, they come to a way to make it work, you know, whether mm-hmm. that, Sometimes they can do it without the courts, which is probably even the ideal situation. In some, that would be the best way to do it. But you know, when you get to the family court system, there's a lot of little rabbit holes that are pretty freaking bottomless. You know, there's a lot of things are surrounding child support that a lot of people don't know. Um, Like one of them is for every dollar that a father pays while on child support, the federal government pays that court system or that county 66 cents Hmm. for every dollar that the father pays. So it uh, it behooves the family court system to get as many fathers on child support and get them at the maximum amount of child support that they can because they get all that money and revenue back from the federal government. They get bonuses for the number of cases that they have, the number of cases that are in the black um, they get this, there's a crazy bonus system that the family courts get for all these different, different stats that they hit. You know, and that's a tough one. I think a lot of men who maybe aren't in that situation or haven't been in that situation might not understand. Like, like I know if you have a child, you know, as a man, whether that child lives in your home or not, there is a responsibility to be a part of providing for that child. You know, do you think that the system has become maybe exploitive of that? I think it's become very exploitive. I look at it as racketeering, um, basically. You know, I absolutely agree with you that if you make a child, you have a responsibility to that child, to care for that child. Um, But there is a fine line between caring for that child and paying astronomical sums to actually see your child. And that's what's happening, because if you look at what a father pays in child support versus what a mother would pay in child support, given the same set of circumstances, they're not even close. I mean, I can tell you from my own personal experience, when I was still fighting for custody of my son and paying child support, I was paying almost $700 a month for one child. Okay, when I turned around and got child support, they offered me child support. And I said, well, what, how much? $75 a month is what I was offered. Hmm. I mean, almost $700 compared to $75 a month. I mean, that's, it's, you know, that's ludicrous. It doesn't do anything. How does that get calculated? Does it based on income or based on? So each state has their own formula for how they do it. Um, There's, it's a lot of different data points go into it, but basically like your job is at 40 hours a week. How much do you pay? You know, your rent, all your different bills. They go into a financial calculator and they come out with whatever it is you're supposed to pay. The, the One of the funny things is most times, well, I shouldn't say most times, there are times where the, the mother does not turn in their financials and the court is okay with that, where the father has to turn in their financials. I mean, you can have um, contempt of court charges put against you if you don't turn in your financial documentation. Hmm. But a lot of times, if the mother doesn't do it, the court just goes, oh, okay, and then substitutes a figment or a figure in place, even though they don't know what the actual figure is, they'll just figure, oh, minimum wage at 40 hours a week. Well, it could be several times that of minimum wage, but they don't know. So they just kind of go with that. So 
I imagine, and I mean, I've also seen this, right? I know a lot of single mothers who there's a father in the picture and he's a deadbeat. He pays child support because they make him, but he won't get a job that's on the books <laughs> so that he makes 90% of his cash, you know, without being, or maybe half of his cash, not, not documented. So he has to pay less, um, which again, may, there's times when that could be where the, he almost feels forced to do that, but let's look at, you know, like sometimes there's a guy who should be paying what's expected. Yeah. What, like, do you think that that might taint or that image might be what's tainting the system a little bit? Do you think that they're just trying to collect as much as they can to make sure it gets to the kids? Or do you think there's something and, else going on? You know, at this point, I don't even think it has to do with the kids because the, the common point of child support is to make sure that the, the child has a comparable lifestyle between two different households, mom and dad's household. Mm -hmm. So if the child is accustomed to living one way at mom's house or at dad's house, she should, he or she should be able to go to, you know, the other parent's house and not lose anything as far as lifestyle goes. That's generally speaking, the whole point of child support. And it's gotten so ridiculous that um, they just take, 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 take. Like if you get into a situation where you have extremely high child support, and you're busting your butt and you're not making ends meet and you go to child support enforcement and say, Hey, you know, this is what's going on. I, you know, I can't survive off this child support. Is there something that we can do? They will laugh at you. They'll tell you, go get a second, third, fourth job. They don't care what happens. And that's the situation that you get into because a lot of times these guys are ending up paying really high child support, but they still have to live their own life. They still have to pay their own bills. They've got to pay their own rent, their own car note, all these different things. And child support takes so much in a lot of situations that these guys can't afford to pay any of these other things. And then you just get into this really nasty situation where you're robbing from Peter to pay Paul and it does nobody any good. And then a lot of times these guys go off the books and they get jobs that are off the books because that's the only way that they can survive. You know, it's a very archaic system the way it is now. And nobody wants to take the responsibility to reform it. So let's say a guy's in that position where he is getting, you know, he's, he's got to pay a child support that he doesn't think is equitable or fair. What, what's his best option? Well, it, depending on how long the situation has gone on for, I mean, every it's every year to two years, you can have it readdressed and re-looked at to see if you can lower it. But other than that, you got to find ways to, to, to make the money, you know, a second or third job. I'll give you a, a, a perfect example. When it, when it was me, when I was paying child support, you know, it was coming to the point where I had more going out between the child support and all my bills, you know, during the month that I had to find supplementary ways to be able to do all these things. Because when it came time to go see my son, you know, I had to fly to Kentucky, you know, so there's airfare. I had to rent a car, you know, I had to get a hotel and then I had to pay for his flight back. You know, so we're talking a couple grand easily on top of all these other things that, you know, I'm already paying. I've got all my bills. I'm already paying. I'm paying child support. So I started a job picking up dog crap in the spring. Okay. After the winter goes, you know, people's lawns are just destroyed because the dog's been out pooping in the snow all winter long. And I found a gold mine. People will pay ridiculous amounts of money for somebody to go do this. I mean, there was weekends where I was going home with $2,500 cash. I'd pay for that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I tell you, I, so I stepped out outside of my house one day, getting ready to go to work. And I stepped in a big pile of dog poop. And I was like, oh, you gotta be kidding me. And then it just dawned on me. I wonder if somebody would pay for this service to pick it up. So I wrote up a little thing on Facebook and I posted it in one of the Facebook market groups. That night I had 300 responses of people wanting me to come and clean their yard. And for the year in between when I won 50-50 um, uh, and when I won full custody, that's how I was able to afford going to see my son, going to spend that summer and having him with me for the summer is all the money I made off of doing that. And I, I tell fathers, you know, you got to be able to think outside the box 
when you're looking at the financial aspect and yeah, it's a, it's a shitty job. Excuse my French, but literally it, it, it allowed me to do all this. Yeah. Well, and I think that's probably a good uh, way to put it too, is if you, if you're not able to get the court to really reevaluate or look and make sure that it's not fair, you you got to find creative ways to make the money to be able to afford it. And I think that's actually a, probably a really good way that, you know, especially having that community of fathers is you can put something like that out there. And the guys are like, Oh, that's a great idea. You know, cause there's always money to be made. Like I, I know people always like to look at the economy and they're always like, Oh, this economy is horrible. No, there's, there's always somebody willing to pay for something. I mean, you could take pictures of your nasty feet on the internet which I don't recommend, but you could, you know, I mean, somebody will pay money for that. (laughs) Yeah. And, and that's exactly what it was. And, you know, I had so many funny looks when I would show up at these people's houses and do this job. And I remember, um, I showed up at this one guy's house and the way I, I, I priced it out as a small yard was 20 bucks. Okay. A medium yard was 30 bucks and a big yard was $50. And then it was $5 each additional dog. And so this guy's yard was a big yard. And so I got there and I go through and I do it. And it took me 20 minutes to do this guy's yard. Okay. And I bring all the tools with me. You know, I dispose of it. I take it off site. I dump it. So it's, you know, really actually a great deal. And this guy, you know, pays me and he goes, he goes, I, I got a question for you. And I said, okay. And he was kind of whispering it, which I thought was funny. And it was just me and him. He goes, are, are you homeless? I said, am I homeless? No. I said, I'm a manager at UPS. He goes, really? I said, yeah. He goes, but you're, you're picking up dog shit. I said, I am. I said, you realize you just paid me 60 bucks for 20 minutes of my time. I said, I've got five other yards to go to after yours. That's during a weekday. I said, on the weekend, I start at 730 and I work until dark both days. I said, how much money do you think that is? And you could just see the wheels spinning in his head. And he was like, holy shit, that's a lot of money. I said, yeah, that is a lot of money. That's why I do this. He goes, dude, that's a brilliant idea. And I was like, well, you know, it works. People don't want to do this. So I found a niche for it. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, and like I said, I think there's something somewhere that you can do and make money. I know a guy that... Um, was short on cash. And so he went and he bought uh, like a headlight cleaning kit and it was enough to do maybe three or four cars worth. And he just did the same thing, put it on, Hey, I can brighten up your headlights. Cause you know, the headlights get all scratched up. And so, you know, he charged X amount and then went and was able to kind of buff them all up. And then it paid for the kit to do the next three or four cars. And, you know, when it like quadrupled his money, you know, and all in one Saturday. So you know, there's always somebody willing to pay for something. Oh, absolutely. And the overhead on like doing what I was doing outside of gas, gas was the most expensive thing. Hmm. But other than that, everything else was minuscule. I bet you overhead wise for the entire quote unquote season, I bet you I spent hundred bucks in materials and that was it. That's awesome. But you know, I brought in over 10 grand. So, yeah. And that, again, helps you to do what you need to do. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, it allowed me to spend a really awesome summer with my son. So, yeah. Okay. So then the next question is, you know, and that really is what leads me to it. When you talk about spending that awesome summer with your son, what about that portion of it? You know, I know now your son's with you, but Mm -hmm. I know a lot of dads who um, they're only on when the kids are with them. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, what, what is, what does that look like? Or how, how can a dad be that dad for their son when, when they're not able to be present most of the time? Well, it takes a lot of work. You know, my big thing was, you know, because I had such a great strong relationship with my son before all this happened when he was younger, my whole goal was keeping that relationship intact. So calling every single chance I got, texting, gifts, um, going down there every single chance I had. Basically, you know, living my life for my son, even though he wasn't with me all the time, was how I looked at it. You know, everything that I did had something to do with my son. There was some end game that involved my son. 
in doing that. I mean, I would go out mountain climbing. So my son is a huge train fanatic. Like before we did this podcast, uh, we were out watching trains and came home so I could do this show. But what I would do, you know, is I would go out hiking, you know, up along the rail lines and I would take videos of trains and pictures of trains and send him that stuff. And it was just something to foster, you know, that relationship. Like the first tooth that he lost, I wrote a letter, you know, from Amtrak to him talking about that tooth that he lost and sent that to him. And it was all just just ways to, you know, foster the relationship that we already had and to keep it going strong in that interim when I couldn't be with him all the time, when it was just a matter of being together during the summer. Yeah, I, I like that idea of, you know, writing letters and and just staying in touch in whatever way you can. I think, like I said, you can't just turn it off when your kid's not with you. Yeah, no, and, and you know, don't get me wrong, it was brutal. You know, I mean, there was a lot of times where, you know, I, especially when I was younger, I would, it would really upset me because I was coming home to an empty house. You know, I, I didn't get to see him. I, you know, at that point in time, I only got to see him for a month during the summer. That's the only time I got to spend with him because we were 2000 miles away. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it was difficult. It was really difficult. A lot of times I had to find things to do to actively take my mind off that situation. So I didn't just fall into a pit of black despair. That actually is a good question. You know, I know what does a guy do when, you know, wow, you hit that wall where, okay, my family's is broken up and I'm not going to get to see my kids as often as I want. Sometimes if at all, you know, what advice do you give that dad? So, you know, what I tell the dads is, you know, the first thing I'll tell them is I said, I'll say, do you have any hobbies? You know, do you have anything that is outside the realm of your children, the divorce, the family custody battle? Do you have anything outside of that realm that is purely yours? Nine times out of 10, they'll say no. Okay. They don't have anything. And I said, well, you know, you have to get something because you cannot just live in that negative headspace 24 seven, because it is so horrifically toxic. You know, you can't spend all your time there. You have to find something that you can do. It doesn't matter if it's 20 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour a day, an hour, every other day, you know, a couple times a week, you got to find something that you can invest all your time and attention to. It has nothing to do with this other thing because it gives you the ability to recharge mentally and emotionally. Because if you don't, you're, you're going to fall to pieces and you can't be a parent for your children if you're not well. You know, it just doesn't work. And so for me, when I was going through that process, my thing was, you know, I live up here in Montana and I don't know if you've ever been to Montana, but, you know, we've got some great mountain ranges and hiking and all that stuff. And, and that was my thing. I would go out hiking on the weekends. I would go to places that did not have cell phone contacts specifically so I could be, so I could force myself to focus on something else rather than looking at the cell phone every five seconds to see if I got a text message from his mom. I would go up in the woods, way out in the middle of nowhere, and there was times where I would find myself hiking and cliff climbing in the middle of the night, you know, two, three o'clock in the morning, you know, to do astrophotography because that was the other big thing was mm-hmm. photography. That was really, truly my Zen place where I could get away from all the bullshit of life and focus on myself and, and get to know myself again, because I lost myself in, in the midst of all this, you know, I lost who I was and I had to find that person. And so that was what I used to do that. And that's, you know, I, I can't stress how important it is for fathers to have these extracurricular activities that are theirs and just theirs that they can go and do. doesn't matter if it's hiking, photography, fishing, you know, whatever it is, even mowing the lawn can be something that they can do. I mean, it doesn't have to be this, you know, big production. You know, it's just it's something where they can get their mind off the current situation into somewhere else. Because that's the biggest thing. It's a mind over matter kind of thing. Yeah, I, I know a few guys who've been in that spot. They lost their kids and they're upset. And then they focus on it so much that they almost become obsessive and then they start sending 
communications that they shouldn't be sending to the to the mom, you know, or starting to manipulate the kids to get them to to do things in a way that just is it ends up creating so much toxicity that it ends up hurting more than helping. Oh, yeah, it's it's a horribly toxic and negative environment. And the other thing that goes along with this, a lot of times, unfortunately, these dads get so driven by this that it ends up in suicide or suicide murder kind of thing. Yeah. You know, I've seen it play out both ways, you know, and that's, that's one of the other big epidemics that circles the little family court universe is the number of fathers that commit suicide because of all this, because of not being able to see their kids because of the immense financial strain and just the emotional toll being in family court takes on you. It happens every day. You know, I get notification of fathers that have taken their lives and I've been on the receiving end of phone calls and text messages from fathers that saw my Instagram because my contact information is all readily available on there. And, you know, they're on the ledge and they reach out to me and, you know, they're talking to me about it. I'm trying to talk them off the ledge, you know, knock on wood to this point, you know, I've been able to talk everybody down, but there's going to be at some point, there's going to be somebody that I'm not going to be able to, unfortunately, that's just the reality of the situation. Um, you know, and that's one of the things that nobody wants to talk about is the number of fathers that commit suicide that think their only option is to take their life. And that's really sad because you're then just hurting your kid even more. Yeah. You know, you're not, that's definitely not helping. No, no, it's not. You know, I, this guy that I talked to, so I, I was with my son, we were at lunch. This was two years ago, something like that. I got this text that said, you know, Hey brother, I just can't deal with this anymore. You know, I give up. I look at the number. I don't recognize the number. So right away, I'm able to figure out, okay, this is most likely a father. And it took a couple hours, but I was finally able to talk to this guy. And he was a father down in California. And uh, this was on a Saturday. This next day, Sunday, he was going to go and pick his son up. His son was eight. And he was going to take his son to breakfast. They are going to have breakfast. They were going to go to the movies. And he was going to take his son home, drop him off, give him a big hug and a kiss, tell him he loved him. And then he was going to go park his truck on the train tracks and let a train hit him. And uh, I said, dude, I said, you can't do this. I said, I understand you're in pain and everything. But I said, you got to think about the legacy that leaves for your son. I said, your son is eight years old. Your son is going to grow up wondering why daddy hated him so much that he had to kill himself. Yeah. Or that daddy didn't love him. You know, and I said, you know, you got to understand your son's going to think it's his fault. I said, yeah, you're in pain and this stops your pain. But I said, you don't want to leave that kind of legacy for your son. I said, because the other part of it is every lie that was told about you now becomes the truth. Because that's all anybody is going to see is that you committed suicide. And nobody's going to give you the, the benefit of the doubt. You're just going to be this deadbeat dad that committed suicide. I said, and that's truly going to screw up your son. I said, do you love your son? And he said, yeah. I said, then please, you know, don't do this. Don't think about it this way. This isn't the answer. There's got to be some other way. And I, it went so far as he disconnected from me. I had to spend a couple hours calling all the various um, sheriff's department, police departments in California, because I had figured out his general area code. So I was systematically going through all the little areas. And I ended up actually able to track down his ex-wife's phone number. Hmm. And I had to call his ex-wife and tell her what was going on. And the police were luckily able to find him and pick him up on a 72 hour mental health hold. And the dude's doing great now. He's got his own place. He's got a new job. He's got a new lease on life and a new view on things. And, you know, I, I thank God that he does, you know, that he realized that that wasn't the answer. Yeah. Well, and I'll, I'll just say this too, because if anybody's listening in, in that spot and that's what you're feeling, please, you know, reach out to us, you know, and reach out to, you know, call the suicide hotline to call the mental health hotlines. You are not alone and you don't have to suffer through that. And you matter. And, you know, we don't, that's the whole reason I think that drives a lot of what I do. I know it drives what you do. You know, I don't, I don't want to lose any more friends on my watch, you know, and I've, and I've done it. And, you know, don't put yourself in that situation, man. Get help. Yeah, exactly. You know, it, 
life is too short as it is already. You know, it, there's no reason to make it even shorter and to put your loved ones in that horrible position of having to wonder why. So let's talk a little bit about the the courtroom itself and that battle itself. Mm-hmm. You know, what advice do you have for the men that are preparing for that, that are getting, that, that are walking in and they want a better custody situation with their kids? What does that look like? So first thing, you have to understand that to the court system, okay, ultimately at the end of the day, you're just a number, your children are just a number, even the wife is just a number on a court document that's filed away. So you have to get this perception of what is justice and what isn't justice out of your head. Because that was my biggest mistake going into family court the first time. I thought, oh yeah, you know, I my I'm a good person. I'm a law-abiding citizen. You know, the justice system is going to come through for me. Very rarely does it work that way. So you need to understand what you're walking into. Second, you need to document everything that has gone on from start to finish. And I don't care how mundane it is and how ridiculous it may seem to you at the time. Document it. Document everything. When I rolled into family court that second time, I had 13 binders of stuff that I had documented over the last six months, basically showing, you know, the foundation of my case and everything else. If you go into family court with that, you're going to go a lot farther than just going in there with nothing. Because the other big thing about family court, it's not what you know, it's what you can prove. Okay. Because if you go in there and you start spouting all this stuff, but you have nothing to back that up with family court's just going to look at you and go, okay, what does that have to do with anything? We have nothing. We have no proof. Yeah. Okay. So you got to have that proof in there. Um, another big thing is um, you have really have to have your emotions in check. You have to be almost separated from your emotions. That was one of the things I learned is, you know, if you go into family court and you're very, very emotional, it's so easy for them to twist that and use it against you because you go from being this good father that, truly is upset because he misses his children to being toxic, you know, and they will do that in a heartbeat, you know? So it's almost best that if you go in there without emotions, so you're not giving them anything to use against you. You're just stating the facts, you know, without being emotional about it. Um, When you, when you talk to the judge, you know, yes and no answers, keep it simple, stupid. That's the big thing. You know, don't go into this long diatribe about something when a simple yes would suffice. Because once again, you get into these situations where the opposing counsel can twist that and then use it against you. And other than that, it's it's just being smart and, and you know, just being very observant as to what is going on in family court. That's the big thing. Yeah. You know, I think the document document everything aspect is probably the thing that I can see I mean, I honestly, I believe that with anything, you know, if you're dealing with a job, document, 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 mm-hmm. if you're dealing with something like this, anything that could potentially have a legal consequence, write it down, keep a journal, you know, take screenshots of messages because, you know, when you walk in, you now armed with truth that can't be refuted yeah. versus yeah. Uh, an anecdote, you know, uh, you know, well, I remember one time, you know, you know, that doesn't win an argument, you know, or all, she always, yeah. or she yeah. never, you're not going to win an argument with that. No, because it's all hearsay. And the court, the, the court doesn't operate on hearsay. Yeah. You know, and they will flat out tell you, well, do you have anything to back that up? Well, no. Okay. Well, we can't use it. You know, it's it, family court. It's not what you know. It's what you can prove. And there's so many fathers that make that mistake. They go into it thinking, okay, well, you know, this, this, and this has happened. And I can just tell the judge about that. And the judge is going to go, oh my gosh, no, that's not what's going to happen. You know, you got to get another big thing with the documenting documentation. You need to do it every day. So you can't document and then go two weeks without documents and then trying to re recreate what all has happened in those two weeks. Cause you're going to mm-hmm. forget everything. Yeah. You know, are you going to misremember it? You need to get into the habit of documenting every single day as to what happened. Like when I was going through it, I would write, write down what time I called, you know, 
how many rings did it take before they answered? How long was the length of the phone call? Um, you know, who said he had to get off the phone? What time did the phone call end? And I got very, very meticulous in what I was writing down and what I was documenting, but it was just because I had to. And when I got into in the court and I had this monumental stack of evidence, the judge was like, holy shit, you know, this guy's actually been paying attention to what's been going on. You know, so it makes it a lot easier to go through the whole process if you have an idea of what's going on. The other thing that you can do, which this is also something that I did in the process of, of teaching myself family law, I bought a membership to the Bar Association so I could start studying case law mm-hmm. and case law being anything that dealt with family court so I could learn how the whole process worked. So that when I got in there, you know, I understood the legalese that they speak in because that's, that's another big barrier. It's not like you and I talking, you know, they speak in a very specific language. So if you can learn that as well, you're going to be way better off. Yeah. One of the things that you said uh, about being in the courtroom and you talked about, you know, controlling your emotions, almost kind of stuffing them. Now I I would recommend in real life that you don't actually stuff it. You find a healthy expression for it because that way it doesn't come out, but yeah, you have to be detached enough to be able to communicate. I almost feel like you probably have to do that when you're dealing with mom too. Right. Right. Correct. Yeah. Um, you know, and for me, we've progressed to the point where we're, we're good friends now mm-hmm. compared to the point in time where we were mortal enemies. But during that time when that was going on, um, it was one of those things where I would get a text and I would have to bite my lip and type out a reply, wait a second, reread that reply, you know, and maybe delete that reply. You know, sometimes it would take four or five times of writing a reply Till I felt that it was okay enough to send it. Cause one of the other things that I tell dads is, you know, when you're dealing with this kind of stuff and you get a text that really upsets you or an email that really upsets you and you write that back before you send it, stop and say to yourself, would I send this to my mother or my grandmother? Mm-hmm. And if the answer is no, don't freaking send it, you know, cause you're going to create a whole host of problems. If you send this highly aggressive email or a text out. And it's so easy to do when you're trapped up in those emotions because it's really easy to get fired up when it's a situation involving your children. Yeah. And, you know, anything you, like you said, if she's documenting everything the same way that you are, that's going to come back to bite you later. Oh, it will. Yeah. Yeah. Without a doubt. It's so very easy for her to go, okay, judge, here's this text that he sent me where he's calling me this, this, and this, you know, and, and that's a black eye right there in, in the fan, in the eyes of the family court judge that is almost damn near impossible to get rid of because you've set a precedent of the type of man that you are. Yeah. And when you said that about, would I say this to my mother or my grandmother, that's something else I think that a lot of guys don't think about is that they love to express that frustration, that anger with the mother to the kids Mm -hmm. that's their mom, you know? And I I think that's a dangerous kind of precedent to set because you're going to, you're basically undermining her authority and you don't want her to do that to you either. Right. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's, you know, not only are you undermining her authority, but you're trashing her as a person to her children. Okay. And that's going to have, you know, that's going to have horrible effects on your children. You know, they, if they hear you doing this constantly, you know, that's going to start kicking you, you know, biting you in the butt too, because they're going to start looking at you and going, well, you know, dad is always trashing mom. What does that say about dad? You know, one of my biggest rules was no matter how upset I got at my son's mom, I never trash talked my son's mom to my son. Yeah. You know, and that that's another thing that, that fathers have to learn is, you know, yeah, you're more than allowed to be upset at mom, you know, to question this or that, but you don't go talking to your kids about that. Okay. That, that doesn't belong on their shoulders because that's what you're doing because those kids are half of their mom, just like they are half of you. 
And you know, it, it's really toxic and negative when you do that. And if the kids, you know, if there's things that are happening from the mother or whoever that are, that are negative, that they're experiencing, that are frustrating to you, um, you know, manipulation or whatever, like, or if it's coming from you to the kids, you know, you know, a lot of times dads will try to, I've seen dads do it. I'm sure moms do it as well, but I've, I just happen to think of a few situations that I know of where, you know, they'll, they'll ask a bunch of questions and they'll kind of manipulate the kids to give them ammunition, you yep. know? And, and like the day will come when those kids are now adults and, you know, if you didn't handle this with integrity, it's going to come back to bite you and your relationship with them is going to change drastically once it's their choice, you know? Oh, absolutely. You know, and the other part of that is, you know, kids aren't stupid, not by long shots. You know, they are very good at picking up on what's going on and figuring it out for themselves. That's the other part of it that a lot of parents, you know, mothers and fathers don't think about is that the kids are very astute on picking up what is truly going on. And like you said, it comes back to bite you in the butt later on down the road when they are able, old enough and able to make those decisions. And, you know, I know that in different states, it's a different age, but different states have an age where the kid kind of has some say in where he wants Mm -hmm. to go. And, you know, I know that you want to make sure that you are giving them a safe place so that if that's so that when it comes time to choose, they are able to make a choice that is right, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, you know, there's a lot, lot of work that goes into both sides of that, you know, and it's, it's, it's a rough road to be perfectly honest with you. Hmm. You know, anytime you bring kids into a situation, it, it gets to be a very tough road, no matter what you're doing. So looking at your own journey, what was the hardest part for you? Um, the hardest part was not knowing what was going to happen in the future because, you know, there was points in the journey when it first started where, you know, I truly did not know if I was ever going to get to see my son again. And, you know, because there was a lot of parental alienation that had started and, you know, I was being asked to sign away my rights and it was just seemed like it was one thing after another. So it made it really difficult because, you know, I'm a product of divorce. You know, I'm a product of a father that was truly never there for me. Hmm. And, you know, that was always my biggest fear is that I was going to end up being like my dad growing up, you know, and I, I made a vow to myself, you know, when I was really young, I was like 10 or 11, that if I ever had kids, I was never going to do what my dad did to me. And so that, that was my biggest driving force is to, you know, essentially be the father that I never had. But it was scary because I didn't know if I was going to get that opportunity. You know, I didn't know if I was going to be able to pull this off. I remember being really scared when I really went to going pro se and really jumped in both feet. You know, there was this moment where, you know, it was like three o'clock in the morning on a Friday night and I was studying case law. And I just got really, really scared because I didn't know if I was going to be able to pull this off. And if I couldn't pull it off, you know, what the hell did that mean for the future going forward? You know, so it, it, it was very scary. But, you know, I, I, the way I figured it, no matter what happens, you know, I'll know that I did the absolute best that I could. You know, and that's just kind of how I rolled with it. Do you think that most men would be able to represent themselves? Or do you think that um, it really depends on the situation? I think, I think it's 50, 50 on that. I think, you know, pretty much any guy can represent themselves in your general typical custody situation. I think when it gets really, really complicated, then you need a lawyer. But if it's just a run of the mill custody thing, I think anybody could do that. You know, the problem is, is that it's a lot of work and you can't go into it half-assed when you commit to representing yourself you know, you have to fully commit. I mean, when I, when I committed to it, I lost friends. I lost friends that I had had for a long time because I was so solely and singularly focused on this that I would go to work. I would get off work at, you know, 11 or 12 
and I would study case law and do different things for my case until three or four in the morning. And that is what I did seven days a week for six months. I lived and I breathed that family law. And, you know, a lot of guys, well, I shouldn't say guys, I'll just say it this way. A lot of that, a lot of times that is too much pressure for some people, mm-hmm. you know, they, they're just not built to handle that kind of pressure. Yeah. I, I think I'd agree with you there. And there might be some that aren't even intelligent enough. And I don't mean that in a bad way. Like I know there are some things that I know nothing about, like mm-hmm. working on my car. Like I'm a pretty smart guy, but if I've got to work on my car, nope, you can forget <laughs> it. My brain doesn't work that way. You know, and I think a lot of men might have to kind of face that and make sure that they find a lawyer that they can trust. Do you have any advice for finding a lawyer that's good at this? Yeah. So, so, I mean, you really have to vet your lawyers out because one of the things I've discovered is, you know, I, I look at lawyers like I do used car salesmen. You know, they will tell you this big flashy, you know, they'll sing this big flashy song and tell you how great they are and, you know, guarantee you, you know, the stars and the moon, you know, that they're going to be able to do everything you need them to do. And that's just to get you to sign with them. But as soon as they get that check, you know, 99% of the time it's out the door. And then you're having to call these people about what's going on. And, you know, they haven't done anything or, you know, they are so slow in doing things and they don't want to do the things that you want them to do. I mean, there's so many different things going on with that, but that's just my viewpoint of lawyers. My biggest thing is, is vetting your lawyer. Don't just choose the first lawyer that you think is a good lawyer. I mean, put together, you know, 10, 15 candidates and go through and talk to them and actually look at online reviews. That's a, that's a big one. Yelp, you know, is a good thing for that. You know, they do do Yelp for lawyers, but go through and really systematically vet all these potential lawyers out you know, sit down and write hard questions for these guys, you know, see how they answer, you know, don't just choose the first one, you know, cause if you do, you're, you're guaranteed that you're going to get screwed if you do that. One of the, one of the things I wanted to go back and touch on, um, you were talking about the, the intelligence factor and in doing what I was able to do. Truly, it's not that hard. It's, it's really not that hard. Once you conquer the language barrier that operates within the court system, and it's not just family court, but, you know, it's all avenues of court, the legalese that they speak in, that's the hardest thing to understand. Once you get past that, it's actually really simple. It's not that complicated. It's just a matter of being able to stick with it because a lot of times you can get overwhelmed because you have to respond to court briefs, you have to understand how to write the court briefs, and you have a set period of time to reply to the court. If you don't reply, you're kind of screwed. So those are those are the biggest things within within court. It's not that it's you know horribly. What's the right word I'm looking for here? You don't have to be a brain scientist or a brain surgeon to be able to do this stuff in family courts. It's just a matter of, of sticking with it and going through and being very meticulous. Well, and that might also be a thing that you're able to help people understand with, you know, mm-hmm. as, as they're connecting with you, you can give them resources or give some answers if they've got questions that can help point them in the right direction. Yep, absolutely. You know, I, I'll take them through the, you know, the whole experience, you know, because it's, you know, not only doing the research, but it's how to talk to the judge you know, how to interact with the opposing lawyers, how to dress. That is a huge thing. Um, in family court, you want to go in with at least a suit. If you have one, you know, don't show up in ratty jeans and a t-shirt or anything like that. I mean, show up presentable, show up like you're showing up at a job interview because basically from the family court's eyes, that's what that is. It's a job interview and you have to show up like you want it. I actually sat in on jury duty on a case one time and fortunately I was the alternate. So I was supposed to pay attention, but I didn't have to have any say in the decision, which was nice. But the, there were the lawyer on one side was slick and dressed well and looked great. And the lawyer on the other side, like, like his shirt kept coming untucked and his belly was hanging out and his pants were falling down and they were all wrinkly. And he just, you know, and it was very, 
clear. And it's funny because like I just from watching it from where I sat, I felt like the client that he was representing would have done much better because the case seemed to go that way. But that lawyer represented him so badly, you know? Yeah. 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 And it's a huge thing. Image is such a big thing when you walk into that courtroom, you know, because from the moment you walk through those doors, you know, you're being looked up and down. They're looking at everything, you know, so you got to be very cognizant of that, you know, how you walk, how you talk and how you look. It's a huge thing. You know, and that's not something that many people talk about when it comes to the family court aspect of it. I can imagine that that would be an issue. And, you know, and that's the other thing too, is like, so if you need a, 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 a suit, it's not that hard to go to Goodwill and find something that fits you exactly. for a, an affordable amount. You know, you don't have to get brand new, just no. make sure that you look nice. Well, it, you know, and even if you can't afford a suit, get a pair of slacks and a button up shirt, you know, iron them out, make sure they're clean and laundered, you know, run a comb through your hair, shave if you have to you're good to go. Yeah. You know, because as much as people say looks don't matter in situations like this, they do. And the image that you're presenting, it all matters. It all factors in. I think another thing that people don't understand is how much like a lot of the family court system is dealing with issues of abuse and dealing Mm -hmm. with issues that are pretty toxic and pretty scary, you know, and so when the time you come around, they might be like, you know, all right, I've dealt with so much today, you know, don't make their job harder. Yeah, well, exactly. You know, that's another part of it is, you know, you got to understand when you walk through those family court doors, you're not the only person that's going to be in there today. And you're likely not the only person that they've already seen. So you got to look at it as this judge is sitting there and, you know, he's already heard, you know, let's just say, for example, 20 different cases that day. 20 different various sob stories, you know, he's not going to be real inclined to look at you and want to really go in depth into what's going on. He's going to want to go through there and get the job done and get you out the door, you know, cause that's what it's all about. And you, you need to understand that. I've got a family member who's going through a custody situation right now, trying to get custody and the, situation keeps stretching out, you know, he'll get a notification right now. All the courtrooms are in zoom. And so we'll get a notification that there's a zoom meeting. And so he'll be all ready to go. He'll take the day off work. He'll show up. And then it was just like a roll call or a, you know, a real quick lawyers conference and, (laughs) you know, and um, it's, it's not a quick process for him in this fight. Well, and ever since COVID happened, it's backlogged the family court, well, all court systems, but it's, it's backlogged the family court system. It's, you know, log jammed it really bad. And you are dealing with in most parts of the country still, you know, these zoom only meetings and it can be for some of the most ridiculous stuff, like you've said, and you don't know until you actually get into the meeting, what the whole purpose of the meeting is. And if it's just something like a roll call, or if it's just a lawyer meeting and you've taken off an entire day, you can't get that entire day back. You know, for a 20-minute meeting, in fact, um, what was it, two weeks ago, I want to say down in Colorado, um, there was a family court judge that terminated a, a father's parental rights because he could not get connected to the Zoom meeting. He was having connection issues. Hmm. And she just out and terminated his rights because of it. So... Man, I'll tell you what, where we live in rural Pennsylvania and probably where you live in Montana, like that could happen. So, oh, it's a regular occurrence. It is a regular occurrence. Um, you know, and the luckily that situation was sent to a higher authority above her. Basically, it's it's a court that that works off of looking at judges ruling and can change the rulings. And, you know, they restored his you know, his, his, uh, ability to be a father and sent it back down to the court system and said, Hey, you know, this needs to be addressed. You can't just terminate a parent's parental rights because they were having trouble logging onto the zoom. So I, I mean, there's a lot of crazy stuff like that, that you see 
that happens on a daily basis within the family court system ever since COVID. Mm, That's a shame. I, that also kind of reminds me of the lawyer that showed up to a court hearing and he had the cat filter on and didn't know how to take it off. (laughs) Oh my God. That, that was the best. My son and I still watch that and we crack up laughing every time we see that. I am not a cat. (laughs) Your honor, I'm not a cat. It's like, come on. But the way the eyes were moving back and forth, oh my God, yeah. That just, that busts me up laughing every time. (laughs) Yeah, make sure you have the cat filter turned off before you show up to court. (laughs) I didn't even know that was a thing in Zoom. I don't know. That was the biggest part. Yeah, I should probably do a couple podcast episodes with with the cat filter. That would be fun. Hey, there you go. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So... I like to ask my guests these questions and uh, it's gotten some really interesting, really interesting answers that I think have, um, I don't know. I think it makes my podcast a little different in that we get to ask some questions that people don't always think about. But the first one really is this one. And that is if you were to run into the eight to 10 year old version of yourself, Alan, you know, little Alan walks in the room. What are you going to tell him? What do you want him to know? Mm, man, that, that is a tough one. Um, I would probably tell him to be more observant of just everything, you know, cause I think back to, you know, going back through my life now, if there was things that I would have observed over the course of time, I would have been so much better off. So I think that that's a big thing is just being more observant of the world around me and the type of people that you meet and everything that goes along with that. So, yeah, that, that would be the the primary thing that I would tell them that I would also tell them don't bother with art school. <laughs> that would be the other part of it. Cause I've got a, I've got a degree in graphic design that I spent a whole lot of money for that. I've only, I used for maybe five years and that was it. I do a lot of graphic design myself, so I can really, but I didn't learn it from an expensive art degree. I just, I was in a band, right? Hey, there you go. No, <laughs> so, man, I spent I spent all mine going to uh, the Art Institute. Hmm. I went there and got my my degree in that, and that's what I wanted to do. And I, I, it probably would have been a good idea if I stayed out in Seattle, but I moved back home, and there wasn't much in the way for graphic design back home. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, everything's in Comic Sans, and <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, and the next question, and this can be related to the other things we've talked about in the interview, but it could be something entirely different as well. But what do you think is the best advice that you've got for the men that are listening today? So, you know, the, the big thing that I would say, um, believe in yourself. That's a huge one, you know, because I think right now with society being the way it is, um, men and males in general are criticized a lot for a lot of different aspects that are outside of their control. And a lot of times it leads to no self-confidence, no self-worth. And, you know, that's a huge thing right now is, is being able to believe in yourself and being able to believe in you really truly can do just about anything that you put your mind to. It's just a matter of being able to do it. And in regards to um, the other things that we have talked about, you know, more so in the realm where I focus, you know, the family court system and all that, um, you know, just document everything. That's the biggest thing. Document everything. What does that look like? Uh, how do you document? What do you, do you have a system that you use? So when I was going through it, because I don't do it now because I don't have to, but you know, I had a bunch of notebooks that were laid out and, you know, I would just start with, you know, if it was a pickup, I'd write down pickup location. You know, if it was a phone call, you know, the time of the phone call, how long the phone call lasted, you know, how many times did the phone ring before somebody answered, you know, if it was a pickup, you know, when I picked my son up, you know, where was it? What time was it? When I picked him up, you know, was he in good physical condition? You know, was his hair clean, his teeth brushed? How were his clothes? Were they laundered? Were they holy? Were they not holy? I mean, you can, you can make it super detailed, but that was, that was just kind of the way mine went. Yeah. And I had details for all these different things. And, you know, that's how I did, that's how I did my documenting 
and my record keeping on that stuff. Very, very meticulous. Yeah. And I think that's good advice, not only for the family court system, but for other situations that may mm-hmm. involve court. I think it's good advice. And you can, you can take that advice out into, you know, the real world outside legal terms, business stuff, you know, friendship, whatever. I mean, you can apply it to just about anything. Yeah. Alan, uh, if guys want to get plugged into what you're doing, what's the best way for them to connect with you? So the easiest way to find me is on Instagram. That's where I do the bulk of everything. And it's uh, Father's Lives Matter. It's on Instagram. That's where I do the podcast, The Father's Truth. Um, it's a live that I do. Um, I have pages on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok. <laughs> um, but I, I don't really do a lot on those pages. They're more dumping grounds, kind of an overflow from Instagram. You know, the majority of everything is on Instagram. If you reach out to me, um, be patient because I am the only one that's doing this. You know, and I get upwards of 100 to 150 messages a day. So sometimes it takes me a while to get through all those messages. So just, just be patient. Um, if you're interested in doing a coaching session, cause that's the other part that I do. I do work with fathers on a one-to-one basis directly about like the things you and I have talked about. Um, you can go to the fatherstruth.com and you can go to the booking section and book an appointment. And then we can do, you know, something like this, FaceTime, Zoom, um, Instagram, or we can just do a regular phone call. Awesome. Awesome. I think that you are doing an excellent work, an excellent service for guys that really need some help. So I'm looking forward to seeing how you can help others. And again, man, if there's anything here that is uh, resonating with you or that you need to talk about, please reach out. We'd love to hear from you. So, hey, thank you again, Alan, for being on the show. Awesome. Yeah, thank you, Josh, for having me. And like, a, like we talked about at the start of this, you know, it's been a work in progress. We've been playing phone tag, but I'm, I'm glad that we were able to sit down and do this podcast today. Shout out to Alan Donovan of Fathers Lives Matter. Excellent interview, my friend. I appreciate you sharing with us your story. And again, if you want to get connected with him, the information is there in the show notes. Also, if you think this interview is going to be helpful to somebody you know, please share it with them. Send it in a message. Share it on your Facebook page. Tag them. Whatever you need to do. But let's get this out to more men so that they can deal with this issue and learn how to work through this stuff together. Also, if you appreciate the work that we're doing here at Manlyhood, please go to iTunes and leave a rating and a review or Spotify and leave a rating there. Or if you go to YouTube, subscribe, like, comment, and share the video. Let's get the word out about this movement of Manlyhood. Listen, guys, I love you. I care about you. And I'll see you next time. If you want to be a better man, check out our website, manlyhood.com, for blogs, videos, and more from our Manlyhood team. And you can also join our private Facebook group, Manlyhood Man Cave, where you can meet up with a band of brothers who will challenge you and help you on your journey of manhood. This episode is produced by Hatcher Media for manlyhood.com. Be sure to subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes, YouTube, or wherever you're listening to the show. Tune in again for more of the Manlyhood Mancast.